the Surviving Outside Sales Podcast, hosted by Mike O'Kelly, presented by Rhythm AI. The goal is to get in, dominate, then get out. Surviving Outside Sales, along with the show. Welcome to the Surviving Outside Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike O'Kelly. And today we have a real treat. Very excited about our next guest, Mr. Andy Paul. He is a sales guru. He's a podcaster. He is a speaker, a coach, sales author, and I believe sales innovator because of what we're going to be talking about today. How's that, Andy? Is that a, is that a good intro? That's, that's very generous. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I, I, I mentioned before we got on the air, I got your book. And I'm starting to be more proactive with my guests where if they have a book, if they've got a program, et cetera, I love to really dig in because I can tell you, Andy, I'm not a, I'm not a professional interviewer, but I'm trying to get better because mm-hmm. I know it's going to help the audience. But as I, as I mentioned on our pre-show, I felt like either I'm your spiritual animal or your mind, because I felt like I was reading something that could have happened to that happened to me in my early sales career. But We'll get to all that great stuff. Sure. I know you've got a lot to share. Go back as far as you'd like to tell the audience who you are and what you're up to today. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have enough time to go back and talk about everything <laughs> that I've done. Just if I say, yeah, I started in tech sales right out of college at the time selling big computer systems or <laughs> they call them mini computers, but they took most of a room. And yeah, I worked my way through a variety of startups in Silicon Valley and in Southern California, a lot of it in selling large communication systems, satellite-based communication systems to some of the world's biggest companies. Did a lot of travel around the world to say I sold on every continent, but Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And then in the year 2000, started my own company. And really the goal was my expertise had been selling big deals for small companies with no brand name, no track record. You know, so how do you go in and compete against the really big competitors who have brand names and track records? Oftentimes we didn't even have products. And how do you how do you win big deals doing that? So I started a company really to help other small companies learn how to compete on a broader scale. And did that for a number of years until I started the bug to write a book. And so one book turned into three, and I started a podcast with close to eleven hundred episodes now. And yeah, so I still <laughs> I do a variety of things, but it's it's all in in pursuit of this idea of how do we do sales better, right? I mean, it's it's we the motivation for this last book, Sell Without Selling. I was really driven by the my observations through my conversations with clients and everybody that hundreds and hundreds of people have come on my podcast is that we're not getting any better at this thing called B2B sales. In fact, arguably you could make the case by looking at the numbers that we're getting worse. Mm-hmm. And why, why would that possibly be the case given that we have the benefit of all this great technology that's come to the fore in the last 10, 15, 20 years in sales. And so the book really sort of an exploration of why that's the case and what I think is the issue. And so, yeah, sort of devote the time that I have working with clients and, and so on about this idea of, are we really going about the right way? And what is the right way to go about it? I a hundred percent agree with you. I think there is something broken and from the surviving outside sales, the reason why it was started was there's everybody's talking about closing these days. And I think the hyper-focusing on closing mm. is what I think that's part of the cancer sure. because there are so many things and you know, this obviously there's so many things that go into a sales process. And if you're just focusing on 
you know, the last five yards and you're not worried about the first 95, a lot of negative things can happen in those first 95 yards where you don't even get there. Oh, yeah. And I well, think that I think that's what's happening. Yes. Yeah. I think that 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 is certainly the case. I mean, there's a couple ways to look at that. Mm-hmm. What you just talked about is is one is. Yeah, I put this challenge to sales leaders. So when you're hiring people, when you're deciding who you need to hire, do you ever go ask your buyers what they need your salespeople to be? Because they've got a job. Your buyers have a job and they're basically hiring us as sellers. Mm-hmm. If you subscribe to this theory, the jobs to be done theory is they're basically hiring us to help them make an investment decision, right? Mm-hmm. So what do they need from us to make that happen? And where on the list is closer? Right. We're on the buyer's list. Would, would a buyer say, yeah, you know, if you're going to help me, you need to hire a closer, right? It's just, it's not on their list because mm-hmm. they don't need that. That doesn't help them whatsoever. So I think there's this mythology around this idea of closing, which you know, is, yeah, it's destructive as you talked about. I mean, I challenge people to close, you know, sell big B2B deals to enterprises I have. And yeah, I've closed better part of a billion dollars worth of sales. And it's like, I don't think I was ever in the room when the customer made their decision. Mm-hmm. It's not like I was putting the heavy clothes on them. Yes. We helped structure the deal in such a way that made logical sense for them to make a decision at a certain point in time, but I wasn't this, you know, extroverted hunter or closer type mentality. It was like, <laughs> no, I'm there to help the buyer. So yeah, we're just at odds with the buyers and what they're trying to accomplish into your, your last sort of point about that is, yeah, is, is what we're doing is we're training sellers to sell before they understand the buyer. And, you know, a simple framework to think about it for people is, is just forget your sales process because in terms of your stages and so on, because that no relevance to what the buyer is trying to accomplish at whatsoever. And think about the buyers going through and it. Think about the buyer sort of goes through three stages, really simplify it for you. And their buying journey, three stages. I call it the what stage, the how stage, and the who stage mm-hmm. in order. So the first stage, the what stage, what's my problem? What am I, what, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? What's the pain point I'm trying to resolve? And what are the outcomes I want to achieve? That's the first thing a buyer does is try to come to an understanding of that. That's why they need to talk to salespeople, right? To, to ask them questions where they don't know to ask themselves. So if you're coming into pitch, at that point in time, what are you pitching? You're pitching before the customer even knows what the problem is, right? They may have an idea, but it has no relevance to them at that point. So that you look at that what stage, that's really a, that's a stage for ideas, right? And once they sort of get a handle, okay, we've got an idea now of what our problem is, what the challenges are, what we want, the challenges we want to address, and the outcomes we can achieve, then they go into the how stage. How can we accomplish this? Now they start looking at specific products and solutions. And this is, this is where you're coming in as a seller with, with your great questions and your you know, ability to really understand what the buzzer is trying to accomplish to influence the choices and trade-offs they're going to make during this house stage, right? Because it's always a compromise, right? You can't get everything you want. So you're trying to be that influence on them as they make that navigate through that part of their buying process. And what they do is, and there's been research on this, when the people get to this sort of in this how stage, what they do is they formulate options, one or more options. This is a way we can achieve our desired outcomes, solve our problems. 
And they may have four or five options. My goal in that stage was always, yeah, I wanted as many of those options to include my solution, right? Because, <laughs> hey, if I thought if I could go into three different proposals to a buyer, my odds of winning the deal go up substantially mm-hmm. or three different approaches to solving it. So then, yeah, they're just trying to decide how they can solve it. The, the least important thing a buyer does is the who stage, which is who we're going to work with to achieve our outcomes and solve our problems. But unfortunately, most sellers go in first thinking, oh, no, I got to pitch first. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sell the who before they even know what the what is. And that's, yeah, that, yeah I think that's become more emphasized over the last 10, 15 years, given the way we sort of conduct sales. And it's, it's no surprise. Then you look at that. And during that same period of time, percent of reps hitting quotas dropping, you know, you can make the case arguably that individual seller productivity, meaning how much revenue they're generating per hour of t- selling time is actually dropping as well. Mm-hmm. That's really problematic. You said a lot because you, you talked, you touched on a lack of training. You talked on a lack of business acumen being taught. And then also possibly, I, I know that a lot of the industries that I've ta- I talked to, they're doing a lot of work that doesn't lead to selling activities. It's a lot of reporting. It's a lot of filling the CRM, which is important. I'm not saying it's not, mm-hmm. but they do a lot of non-generating, non-revenue generating activity. And it's becoming more and more and more. And as I mentioned before we got on air, you know, my father was in sales for decades and you know, he used roll quarters because he would he'd make phone calls from payphone to check his mm-hmm. voicemail. And so he's completely unattached. So literally the time that my dad left his house in the morning until he came home, he was doing nothing but good calls, nothing yeah. but sales. But now it's, well, you got to put the notes in and you got to put this in, and you got to put that in, which to an extent is great. Well, but, but it's interesting uh, that you bring that up though, because there's, there is data that's been sort of tracked over a number of years showing the percentage of time the sellers actually spend on selling activities. Mm-hmm. And based on what I've seen and based on my observations and work with the customers that, you know, that number really hasn't changed much over the decades. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, I think if you had certain field sales roles, right? Like your dad, he is out, they were had to be in doctor's offices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was their job as a pharma salesperson. But yeah, you know, and sort of this general sort of hybrid role, which has existed forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's you call it outside sales. You want I certainly was in that for a good chunk of my career. Is yeah, I traveled depending on you know the time. Maybe it's twenty five percent of my time, but yeah, most of my time was still in the office. Yeah, I, I don't think it's I don't think that percentage that sellers sell percentage of time has really substantially changed for most sales roles. I think that. I think they're just less productive with the time they're actually spending with clients. And that to me is that could the be. heart of the matter. And yeah. that's a, you know, fair enough. That's a great, I'm glad that there's some numbers to backing it. I had not seen that. So thank you for sharing. And yeah, I definitely believe it could be, but again, I think that comes back to the training. So my background, Andy is in the mm-hmm. medical field. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I'd go into these companies and I work for several companies and mm-hmm. we would just get trained on the features and benefits of our product. Yep. When my father, of course, was in, he used to sell to cardiologists. I mean, they would they would have weeks of training on the heart mm-hmm. and what different products did to the heart because they had mm-hmm. real clinical discussions with physicians. Now yes. it was just simply talking points. It's get in, regurgitate these three lines, do it every two to three weeks, and hopefully over time the our product will come on top. And so, mm-hmm. really, you know, when I was when I was reading your book, you talk about persuasion. 
And I thought to myself, I said, you know, I feel as if the pharmaceutical industry has kind of moved towards persuasion, not mm -hmm. actually a solution based. And so talk to the audience about your definitions of persuasion versus, I guess, influence. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if you ask a lot of sellers, and I ask this informally, I speak to groups and so on as of sellers. And so what's your job? And as a salesperson, what's your job? And the, and the answer generally falls into the category of well, my job is to persuade somebody to buy my product or service at heart. That's my job. And when you have that perspective, then really this idea of understanding the buyer and what's most important to them and helping them achieve their desired outcomes becomes sort of less important because irrespective of those things, my job is to persuade you to buy my product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and even look at the definition of the word persuasion. It's, you know, it's, it has this idea of, you know, you're compelling somebody to do something you're by force. And I cite research in the book from this in a book called the catalyst by Jonah Berger, a professor at Wharton school business that found that universally human beings resist being persuaded universally. Everybody in the world reacts negatively to being persuaded. They call it persuasion reactance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, if that's the case, isn't it just sheer insanity that we spend all these dollars in training sellers, how to become better persuaders. And so the alternative is influence, right? We're trying to influence the choices and decisions that our buyers make. And influence is defined as the ability to have an, an effect on the thoughts and actions of others without the apparent use of force. <laughs> and that's, that's our job. Our job is not to persuade somebody to buy something. Our job is to listen to them, understand the things that are truly understand, the things that are most important to them, and then help them get that. That, that's our job as sellers, not to persuade. It's to understand and then help see people achieve the things they want to are most important to them. And we do that through our influence, right? We do that through the questions we ask. We do that through, you know, the, the insights that we can provide based on, you know, the way other customers are using our products and services in a way that perhaps is unique or aligns with how this particular buyer wants to do it. We don't, do it through the hammer, what I call it, sort of the you know, blunt force hammer persuasion. Sure. There's some transactional type products that get sold heavily on persuasion. You know, we've all seen Wolf of Wall Street and Glenn Garrigan and Ross, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but in the B2B world, that's not the way you deal with people. And, but unfortunately, you know, you look at the data that, that research from you know, Gartner and Forrester and other studies, you know, 80% of C-level decision makers are saying, oh, I find no value whatsoever in my interactions with sellers because they show up only primed to talk about their products and not my problems. Mm -hmm. Well, is that a training issue? Yeah, that's a training issue. It's, I, it's a larger issue, though, I think. Too, it's a mindset. It? It's a complete mindset issue, I believe. Which is training. Yeah. It's a socialization issue, you know, in terms of how we socialize what to sellers, what their job is. Mm -hmm. But the part that's missing and the part that that makes people want to buy from us is how they experience us as individuals during their buying journey. Now they experience us as sellers, you know, because you know, pharma certainly has become more competitive in terms of more products in every category, but you know, outside of pharma, every tech product, 
you know, if there was two competitors five years ago, there's 20 competitors today. And so mm-hmm. when you're out talking to prospects, you look just like everybody else. So yeah. what's, what's the way, what's the differentiation? Well, differentiation is the way they ex- go through and experience the sales process or their buying process or being experienced being sold to. And that's up to us as individuals to make that. So we are, we as individuals are differentiators and we're not training sellers how to be the difference. We're training them these days more and more how to become interchangeable cogs in a sales process. And as I write about in the book, the subtitle of my book, Sell Without Selling Out, the subtitle is A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms. The Mm -hmm. fact is the sellers, no one cares about your success as much as you do. No one is as invested in your success as you are. And if you're put into a situation where you think you're being forced to sell in a way that doesn't align with who you are, doesn't align with your strengths, your values, or whatever, you need to change it. You either change it by finding a situation that does align or by taking control of how you sell and saying, no, this is the way I think I need to be a selling. And hey, boss, you can hold me accountable for results. That's fine. But I think there's a better way for me to do this. And I'm going to go do that. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up, especially in the book you wrote down, or you said persuasion as practiced by most sellers is a zero sum game. And so that's Mm -hmm. the reason why immediately I thought of that's a limiting mindset. Mm -hmm. So an abundant mindset, I believe, is being a solution giver. When you create a solution for somebody and you solve somebody's problem, which is really what we're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're not only putting money in your pocket because that's what we're doing it for. You're also providing value for them. And so that is abundance. And I hear a lot of the time that people think, well, because you sold something then I lost. And I think that's the, that's where I've always kind of viewed it as mindset. And, you know, so I actually wrote down in my notes that it's a persuasion mindset versus an influence mindset. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, so what you do is, yeah, mindsets come in pairs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not just a, a growth mindset. The, on the other end of the spectrum from a growth mindset is a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. So we all sit on the spectrum somewhere between those two polar opposites, right? And the same thing is true with persuasion influence. We all sit on on the spectrum somewhere between the two. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. What's the mix that we have and are we being intentional about, you know, leaning one direction versus the other. And at heart, yeah, in my book, it, it really is about being intentional mm-hmm. about how you sell. It's not just showing up. This is the way I was trained to do it. I'm just going to show up and do it. And I don't, yeah, being completely unmindful of how the buyer is receiving it. It's like, no, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you have to think about it as a salesperson is that I've written about this before is that, you know, we all have a brand, whether we want a brand or not, we all have a brand, right? The brand is the identity, the image that is perceived and received by the people we're selling to. Mm-hmm. And we have to be intentional about having that brand be a positive experience on the part of the buyer. And unfortunately for more sellers, it's just so we go through the motions because this is what we're told to do. Exactly. So, no, good. Well, I just say, so in the book, I lay out the difference between the old way, which I call selling out versus the new way of selling. Not, it's not really new because many people have been doing it for a while, but it really is a much more modern approach, which is, yeah, it's the four pillars of selling in. It's 
are my successes based on my ability to, I said, to listen and to truly understand what's most important to you. So to do that, I need to be able to connect with you. I need you know, so connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. These four things are what enable me to, as a seller, I said, to really understand what's most important to you and help you get it. Yeah, I loved it. When I heard the phrase, you know, selling out versus selling in, the first thing I thought of was, you know, when you're selling in, you're in it. You're there with your client, your prospect, whatever. Whatever happens, you're in it together. Mm -hmm. Selling out is very transactional. It is, you know, you're being persuasive. You're trying to get over on somebody and then you're out. Yep. Like you mentioned, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, Pacino, you know, is at the dinner table and he gets the guy to buy all of you know, all of what he was selling and, you know, the guy comes back and I think it was, it was Al Pacino, Alec, ba- Alec Baldwin. No, not, not the famous ABC, but the, I think it was Al Pacino goes to dinner and then he comes back and the guy comes to the office the next day and says, you've got to give me my money back. You know, I told my wife oh. kind of says, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. 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 I know it's very, it, it's, it's, I, I recently saw the movie about a year ago again. So I completely forgot he was in it. Everybody knows the ABC always be closing right. Alec Baldwin, steak knives, brass balls. Yes. We, right. you know, go Google. If you've got seven minutes, go Google a great scene, but now is outdated in sales. If you do that, you're going to get fired. People are not going to want to buy from you. Well, you would hope, but the fact is that there are still but, yeah. many, 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 many sales managers that think that's the way it should be done. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, this always be closing as, as they think is still very relevant. And yeah, there are people that are sales trainers out there that are pushing it and people are buying it, but it's, I know. it's not what the, buyers want. And the problem is you mentioned it perfectly is I don't remember who told me this, so I can't give anybody credit. I did not come up with it, but years ago, somebody said, most of the major decisions that happen in your life, you're not going to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of my deals, I wasn't in the room when the deal happened. So therefore I couldn't persuade them your influence was having advocacy in the room mm-hmm. Your brand went into the room, even though you weren't there. Yep. And that's one of the things that, you know, we've talked about on the podcast here is you want to make sure that it is the best light. You know, somebody falls in love with you when they're not around because they're thinking about you, you're getting hired. Usually somebody is making a decision. They're talking like back and forth. Like if we were sales managers, Hey, should we hire John? And you're like, yeah, I really liked him. Okay, great. I'll give him a call. I'll hire him or no, I won't. And your future is being determined in various aspects of your life behind closed doors. The same is the decision of somebody to purchase it. Very rarely do they do it in person. If it's in person and you, and they feel threatened, they might do it and then recoil later. But yeah, if you do everything right. And so I think it's a process based where if you lay the foundation correctly from beginning to where they make the buying decision. I think it's going to be so obvious to them because you've done such a great job that they're going to be willingly want to partner with you as opposed to the opposite where you're dragging that person across the line, either yeah. through intimidation, physical, you know, threats well, or, or other. And that's just important for people. It's important for people to keep in mind. It's about you personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the gardener done a study, I don't know, sometime in the last 10, 12 years, I can't remember precise date this idea about trust and the trust with buyers is the first most important or magnitude or order of trust was with the seller mm-hmm. more so than with the company they work for. Right. So I said, you make the difference and yeah, right about this in the book is, you know, there's a question that, that every, every buyer asks. In fact, you get asked by multiple people in your life, just not buyers, but buyers in particular, which is, 
question is simply, why you? Mm-hmm. Why should I trust you? Why should I invest my time in you? Why should I believe you? Why should I give you credibility? Yeah, I can go down a list. I have a list of questions in the book, but they're all fundamentally the same question. Why you? And you answer that question through how the buyer experiences you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buyer's not going to, buyer, well, I tell a story in the book, the buyer does ask that question of me, but I had no idea how to answer it. And it became clear to me eventually, it's like, Oh yeah. The way you answer that is how the buyer experiences you, right? You can't tell somebody why you're great. People have to experience it. Mm-hmm. And that really gets to the nub of it. Every, every prospect you're talking to is thinking to themselves, why you, why should I invest my time in you? Why should I invest my attention in you? Why should I invest my company resources in you in order to evaluate your product? Why should I trust you? Believe you go down the list. Surviving outside sales podcast is brought to you by rhythm AI. If you are in outside sales, check out RhythmAI.com. That's R-I-T-H-M-A-I.com. The sales enablement tool that will help outside sales teams build their best sales days every day. Rhythm. Prospecting, targeting, and routing simplified. Everything an outside sales team needs, nothing it doesn't. Try for $1 for the first month today. That's RhythmAI.com. Now back to the show. People don't always buy the best product. If that were the case, there'd only be one product on the market. No, they they rarely buy because of their experience with the brand. And I'll tell you right now, there are brands that I won't purchase from, not because I have any disdain for them. It's just the other products that I purchase. I just have a better experience. The website's easier. The customer service is not a hassle, uh, Mm -hmm. no shipping issues. Mm -hmm. And so I will, you know. I, I, I know that I won't necessarily have the quote, quote unquote, best on the market. And I'm sure you get hit up a thousand times a week. You know, I get, I get messages on LinkedIn. I get emails all the time and everything is leading with them, with them. With mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I look, I'm raising my hand. I was taught that way. And I sure, did that are. early in my career where hey, I'm here and this is what I have. And this is why this is great. And now I just cringe thinking about all those years and all those poor people that I pitched. And I, even, I hate that word pitch. And I love how you put the, the columns in the book. And, mm-hmm. and I know you can't, I know you can't listen. If you're listening right now, you can't see this, but he has perfect. I love imagery, by the way, I'm very creative. I love pictures. I love images. Not that I'm immature, but it's just so simple how you've you've put everything and laid everything out in the book. It's a fantastic, easy read, by the way. And I do think everybody needs to pick it up. Side note, by the time that this episode airs, hopefully my website will be up and running with links to get the book. So all of my book okay. recommendations and all the guests, you can just click on that, go buy the book. I highly recommend it. It's a very easy read and it's going to make you smarter in your sales job a lot easier. But I got off on a tangent. That's okay. I got off on a tangent. And now I lost my train of thought. But uh, you know, we were talking about we were talking about why you. And, oh yes, yeah. And it, that's yeah, favorite story of mine in the book about first one. I got asked that question by a, a prospect. I was completely unprepared for the the question, mm-hmm. but it opened my eyes to the idea that when the customer said, "Well, why should I buy from you?" It wasn't about why should I buy from the company. Mm-hmm. Why should they buy from me? Yeah. And yeah, to your point earlier, there's been research on this. I talk about it later in the book is that most people make what we would call or consider the good enough decision. Mm-hmm. And Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon did tons of research on this. He talks about 
decision makers basically fall into two categories, what we call a satisficer or a maximizer. Satisficers are people that research uh, solutions until they find one that satisfies the requirements and suffices to achieve their desired outcomes. And they create a new word called satisfice from the two. Alternatively, there are people that are maximizers. They will look at every potential solution mm-hmm. to ensure themselves that they make the absolute best choice. And there are people that do that. And that's fine. In fact, in our personal lives, we are sometimes maximizers. You know, if we're making a life, an important sort of you know, critical life decision about, let's say, surgery or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chances are we're going to do extra research and try to convince ourselves that we're making the absolute best choice. But most of in the business world, most customers, they research the alternatives till they find one that satisfies the requirements and suffices to meet their desired outcomes. And then they say, look, we could continue to invest time in making a decision, but the marginal gain we'll get from that is zero mm-hmm. because the products are all basically the same. So let's make this decision now and move on. And if you understand that as a seller, you know, I share in the book how that influences how you should be selling to people and these sort of critical milestones you want to achieve first because it puts you in a position that when the buyer says, yeah, this is good enough, you're there. You're the one that's good enough. And, and when you start, and, and when I say you, as anybody listening, when you start thinking of these ideas, you'll start to see them everywhere. I'll give you an example, Andy. A couple of weeks ago, you know, my wife and I have been talking about getting solar panels on our house. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of companies out there. And so, Absolutely. I mean, there's probably a hundred. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. And so they're all offering pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we have the guy come in the house and I, I meet him outside. And I just said, Hey, you know, I hadn't met him yet. Somebody came by and knocked on the door. My wife answered and she set up an appointment. I said, all right, how much is this? Well, you know, it just depends on X, Y, and Z. I said, okay, give me a ballpark. Like that right there should tell him I'm interested. Like I'm a very no nonsense buyer. Mm -hmm. How much is it? I very quickly conceptualize it. I'm like, all right, let's do it. My wife laughs at me. She goes, you make decisions very quickly about purchasing things. And I said, well, Mm -hmm. Luckily, I have enough life experiences where there's not a lot that's so new to me. I have no idea what it is. I usually have some opinion on a product or service. Mm -hmm. And if I hear it and I like the guy, you know, and so right off the bat, it's not a great start. He then gets in and proceeds to talk for 25 minutes about his, and he just gave a presentation and I'm just kind of sitting there and I, you know, Andy, I'm, I'm very ADD and I just, I have to keep moving. And so sitting in a chair is not great for me, especially for 25 minutes when somebody just keeps talking, not one question was asked. Right. And I'm kind of sitting there and I was like, oh my gosh. And I start, I start having flashbacks almost like, you know, like what they say veterans have of, you know, wars. And just, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm thinking of all the sales that I probably destroyed because I was this guy just sitting mm-hmm. there verbally just spewing facts and figures and presentation and why their company was the best. And before he left, he still did not ask a single question. And then of course, did the old, uh, Oh, by the way, I just talked to my manager and guess what? We don't do this for all clients, but we're well, we have to. a special you, deal for you. Yeah, special deal. If you sign the contract today, we're going to take 15% off. And so I told my wife, she goes, what do you think? 15% off. I said, well, if they're giving 15% off less than 24 hours later, they have 15% to give off anyway. That's their mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she goes, really? And I said, yeah. You know, and my wife has learned a lot about sales since, since we've known each other. She, she even admitted, she goes like, I didn't realize these tactics before, but 
now it's almost like I can't unlearn what I've learned and I just see it now. And I'm trying to make up Andy for all of those bad pitches. And I've always, I always joke, I do apologize. If you've been one of my customers and you're listening right now, I am sorry because <laughs> I was doing what I was told. And so you, you kind of, you know, or talking back to the persuasion, right? I was trained at a company, hold the sales piece at a 45 degree angle and use a ballpoint pen, not your finger. Cause that's rude. Use a ballpoint pen and point as you're talking to the doctor. And I raised my hand and it reminded me of your initial training that you went mm. to in the basement with your, I think your first sales job. Right, and, right. and I remember sitting there thinking, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen before in my life. These are physicians. They are the smartest of the smart people. And you are literally like, it's a, like a little picture book for a child mm-hmm. using your pen and helping them read it. I said, first of all, I'm going to get thrown out of every office. And I said, is that really what we should be doing? Oh man, I almost got fired right in training. Because I wasn't quote unquote being a team player and you talk around, you know, the authorized way of selling. And I actually wrote down a little blurb on my notepad as I was reading the book. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to say the company, but would you be shocked to say the, to know that the company went out of business? You probably aren't. No, that's the way they're treating, but uh, I mean, that's just, yeah, share that story. Share that story with the audience. I think it's a great, fascinating story. And I think it kind of encompasses about, everything. About, about my sales training, my first training, first job, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Big company. It's the second largest computer company of the day. This was decades ago. But yeah, I, I found myself, we got sent to the strain class after we'd been on just like two weeks in the office or finding out where the restrooms are and so on. And then gets on our way to training. And so yeah, in the basement of this hotel. And this is our regional training center for the Western half of the United States. And I just remember watching these videos of this sales trainer who's they bought the whole set of this guy's videos. And he was just sort of the slick haired evangelical con man and bullying through objections and so on. And I just, yeah, I said to myself, what, what human being acts this way? And it certainly wasn't going to be me because I couldn't act that way. <laughs> I just said, not that I wouldn't die, I couldn't. And I was going to have a very short career in sales if I couldn't figure out a way to sell that was more in alignment with who I was. And so really, almost near the beginning of my career, is sort of set out on this path to say, look, there has to be a better way. There has to be a way that, that I can work in this profession and I'm not like everybody else. And that then became sort of the genesis for the work I do with clients and so on. Is this idea is that there are 5 million salespeople in the world. There are 5 million unique ways of selling. Mm-hmm. Your job as a sales leader is to acknowledge that you have a bunch of people that are different. And how do you help each person become the best version of themselves as opposed to just another clone replicating your process that you somehow magically pulled out of the air and you think works for everybody? Yeah, it's... If I had a dollar every time I heard them say, you got to, you got to get with the program. I had several managers. I was, I mean, Andy, I don't, I don't know if, if you could tell, but I was not well liked by senior management at a lot of the companies that I worked for because mm. I was always the one rep that was willing to be like whack-a-mole and stick his head out and raise his hand and be like, I don't think that's a good idea. And, you know, that's not rewarded in the corporate structures of sales. Oftentimes. Oftentimes, yeah. I mean, there's this bias against curiosity yeah. in many organizations. There have been companies that have come out a CEO of a company called Box of Crayons, a woman named Shan Minifee that was on my show last year. Mm-hmm. Actually, we just replayed the episode last couple of weeks ago. 
yeah, her company published this research report about how curiosity is punished within organizations. Yeah, there's this move to conformity and it's it's nobody's friend. Conformity is not our friend is if you're trying to succeed in this world is being yourself is the best you can be and the best version of yourself or as best as you can be. That's where you want to be. You don't want to be. And so, I mean, so often in sales training, it's like, yeah, act like Mike, right? When everybody wants to be like Mike and it's like, Mike is Mike. Yeah. You be you and let's help you determine what's the best way to do that. And, and it, it shocks me because I, I feel as if, and I've listened to a lot of sales leaders and you ha- you say in the book, you know, you talk about persistent curiosity mm-hmm. and that's really what I think makes a great salesperson is mm-hmm. asking, you know, I can't, again, I need to start writing some of these things down because I don't credit the people. And I feel like that's an injustice. I need to start writing it down. But somebody on LinkedIn said they go 10 questions deep and they always go 10 questions deep. And they try to figure out how they can get as much information out as possible. And very famously, Harvey McKay, he's got the, the 66. The 66. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was in Swim with the Sharks, or maybe that was a different. It was. It was. Yeah. yeah. Was. And, you know, if you haven't right now, Swim with the Sharks, it's a great fundamental book. It's really one of the basic, you know, one of the bases for kind of a sales mentality and kind of, you know, that, that I believe that old school does work, you know, the Harvey McKay of well, really getting think- to know. Yeah, I don't think that is old school. I think that's yeah. that is not practice that's anymore. Sales. That's what I mean. Well, it's just not, not by enough anymore. people. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you'd alluded to it earlier. Is, yeah. you, know, you get engaged or contacted by salespeople all the time that that just yeah, pitching, it's all about them. That's always been the case, right? That that's yeah. not new or old. I think it's a little more pervasive now mm-hmm. uh, because it's easier to find people to talk to. You know, I got started, I had a business directory and yellow pages. I mean, that's not to date myself too much, but (laughs) it was a little harder to dig up, dig up prospects. Now it's pretty easy to find somebody to talk to, but people come Mm ill-prepared. So, and I think that's kind of the, in, in the training that I've gotten. So I've worked for, I mean, I've worked for publicly traded medical companies, Mm -hmm. you know, capital equipment, medical sales, pharmaceutical sales. Right. And a lot of it is just kind of, you know, aim, point, shoot, and then maybe hit the target or no, it's what's the phrase when you just, it's shoot, aim, point, ready, fire, aim, ready, fire, aim, ready, fire, aim. Yeah. And it's kind of like, Hey, if you hit it, you hit it. It's the shotgun effect. It's not, you know, I, I think it should be more of a sniper rifle where you're honing in, you're zeroing in and you have a clear objective of what you're trying to do. You don't go out and just spray the message, but from firsthand knowledge, the message I got was, all right, you start next week, you're going to hit the field, go out for like two weeks and just make calls. And then we'll bring you in for training. What? <laughs> I mean, I'm learning, oh, yeah. new, I'm learning new products and there's technical competence that comes with that. You want me just to go out and make calls? Yeah. Just go out and, you know, you know what to do. You're experienced. Well, yeah, but you know, not in that. And so I, 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 I don't know. I, I joke with people. I said, I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment. I've always taken over kind of the hard cases, the territories that always failed. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was a reason why they failed. Maybe it was a lack of product market fit, or there was just bad management. But, you know, I, again, I, I love the books and that's why I really loved your book. And I, I'm so thankful I could have you on because well, I'm sitting me. here kind of nodding my head, just just replaying all of the things. And this also is very kind of like therapy for me because I realized I wasn't crazy. (laughs) What's the reaction I get fairly frequently from people that have read the book, which is they feel validated. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I've been thinking this way and 
yeah, now I feel like I have permission to actually go act this way. And that's, that's exactly right. And it's great to know that you're not alone because a lot of times, especially in outside sales, you're, you're on an Island Mm -hmm. and you're alone. You know, I have, I've never had a coworker in Charlotte for the last 15 years of my corporate career. Right. Right. I was the Charlotte rep. And so I didn't, you know, there was no happy hours with coworkers. There was nobody to vent to except over the phone and at an occasional sales meeting, but it's a very lonely existence. And so sometimes, you know, the company always promotes the company, 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 and you don't realize that there's other opportunities out there and you kind of start, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and it is very helpful. And so I said, you know, to anybody listening right now, I highly recommend you, you read Andy's book. Andy, thank you so much. You know, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share with the audience that we didn't touch on or maybe kind of pull through an idea that we kind of briefly, you know, hit the surface? No, I think we we covered a lot of things. That was good. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So talk about the podcast and other yes. ways that the audience can reach out and start consuming your information besides sure. just one book, your other books as well. Yeah, those are two previous books. First one's called Zero Time Selling. Second one's called Amp Up Your Sales. And yeah, encourage people to go out and pick those up if they enjoyed Sell Without Selling Out. I have a podcast, which we touched on earlier. It's called Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. And gosh, almost almost 1,100 episodes as we speak. So yeah, we're doing it for a while now. And yeah, have a guest every episode. Yeah, we get some real in-depth conversations about Sales more broadly, not not necessarily enablement itself per se, but more broadly a sales podcast. And then, yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So post a lot of content there. Yeah, encourage people to come check me out there and connect with me on LinkedIn and yeah, follow what I'm doing there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate it. And all the information is going to be in the show notes, all the links. And again, like I said, I've been trying to get the Surviving Outside Sales permanent website up and running. It is, uh, it's been a process, but <laughs> I will have all the books and all of the guests on there. And I really, I, I'd love to get to 1100. Wow. That, that number just seems so far-fetched. It's like when Joe Rogan, uh, I think he's on 1800 now. I, I can't, it just boggles my mind how many episodes there are right now. We're just under a hundred. I think your episode is going to be 95 according to my schedule. So I, 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 I can't wait to continue to study also, you know, your podcast and other podcasters and, and study the information because I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I'd love to be in your shoes in, in several well, years. So you've, you're at a, you have a great start on most podcasters. I think the industry stat is that most podcasters give up after seven episodes. Hmm. So the fact you're nearly at a hundred is a good sign. And yeah, for me, doing a podcast and talking to so many really smart people over the years is, I say, it's a very selfish thing that I've done because I've benefited tremendously from talking to all these smart people. I mean, just in my own life and the things that I do, and let alone all the value we're providing for people that listen to it. So yeah, I get a big thrill out of it and kick out of it and yeah, we'll keep doing it. Yeah. Oh, it, and I absolutely enjoy the people that come on. I, I bring on some of the best minds in sales and I'll continue mm-hmm. to do so because I want the audience to get better. And again, the whole goal we have is we want to keep people in sales. I love sales. Sales has transformed my life mm-hmm. and it transformed my dad's life. And, you know, my dad grew up and he was dirt poor, dirt right, poor, right. and, you know, had to go to do the GI bill and mm-hmm. go into Vietnam and, 
come back and he had, you know, went to college because the government paid for it. And there were stories of, you know, after World War II, my grandfather coming back and they didn't, some nights they didn't eat. And, you know, I think sometimes we have to be pulled back into being thankful for what this industry can do for us. And, you know, wealth can be created very quickly with sales, you know? Yeah. And, and so you're very, if you get very good and if you become a student of sales and you stay with it and you, you learn the right quote unquote mindsets, become mm-hmm. an influencer, it can really change your life. And uh, so that, that's what we try to do. So it's fantastic, uh, well, fantastic career to have. And it's, it's yeah, for me, the experiences I've had, the people I've met, the places I've traveled, the things I've done. Yeah would have been hard to replicate doing anything else. So yeah, it's, it's been, yeah. I encourage people to stick with it. Last thing. Do you have a website that they can go to? Andypaul.com. Very simple. But by the way, I always mention if you have your name, buy it. You never know what you're going to do in the future. It's digital real estate. Always, always buy it. Yes. You no, know, I, 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 Andy, in one of my previous episodes, I, I mentioned, I have michaelkelly.com. I haven't done anything with it yet, but there must've been another Michael Kelly because that website was taken four years and he must've abandoned it. And oh, so there you go. I, nice. scooped, I scooped it up. So like I said, I don't know what I'm gonna do with it just yet, well, but do it. Just not the URLs for your names, but LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever you, you know, tread is yeah. Try to get your name. That's your territory. Yeah. I was fortunate with Andy Paul was, was available. Actually, my kids were quite young. They're both in their thirties. I, I bought their name. So they have their domains too. If they were choose, they wanted to use it, but that's like, a, it's worth having. That's a great thing as well. So that's a free tip right there for, for the audience. So thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thanks Mike. If you want to reach out to the show, Mike at surviving outside sales, really do appreciate everybody who does that. And again, on Apple and Spotify, please give five stars. If you think that we deserve it and download, share with like-minded people and let's keep expanding this surviving outside sales universe. Andy, thank you so much. Really Thanks, do appreciate sir. it. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You too.